audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. You know, there are um, some pretty amazing storytellers around. You might be one of those storytellers. You might know one of those storytellers. I've talked about him a number of times, and I just, I have to bring him up again because I don't know too many storytellers that can compare with my father-in-law. I just, I just don't. And the thing about the stories that he tells, and they are very entertaining, but they get more entertaining the further they get away from the actual event he's talking about. And the more that he tells the stories, the bigger and the better they get. Now, if you're in a public setting, that might not be the place because he can get a little loud in telling these stories. He tends to talk with his hands at times, and, uh, but it can, be, it can be really, really entertaining. And maybe you know somebody like that. Like they tell a story and there's some reality back there to back it up. There's something about stories, though, in our society that is different from the societies as well as the cultures of the past. What I mean by is this. When we think about stories, where our mind goes to, where my mind goes to is, is like works of fiction, you know, some of my favorite stories, or, or myth, or legend, along these lines. Whereas stories of the past were done not just for entertainment, they were done for a purpose, and they were not exaggerated. Matter of fact, they were told with pretty extreme accuracy because it was a way to preserve history. Since our minds don't think in that way, there's a reason why I often, when I, when I talk about biblical events, I don't use the word story. I don't talk about the story of Jonah and the big fish. You know why? Because it happened. As we look today at this ark and this flood, Brothers and sisters, it happened. It's, it's not what we think of as a story. It's an account. And that's why you will hear me oftentimes use those words. I'm not alone in that. I learned that from others. There are a reason why others do the same. So this account of the flood, this account of the ark, let's dig into it, set the stage for it, turn again to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 6. There's some things that are going to jump off the page at us in these next few verses. This is quite some time since the creation. It had been a number of generations, and the generations in that day, in that age, lasted. Not decades, lasted centuries. Okay, so we're talking about some significant time here. And something was happening over this time. Again, beginning with verse 6. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then we get to verse 8, and this is probably a three-letter word that you need to underline in your Bible, and it's one that we should be very thankful is there. It says this, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three, th three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. The Lord looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. Now, I see a word in two verses repeated again and again. It's a word I want to dig into a little bit. And since we're talking science today, you know what the scientific definition of corrupt is? It's this. It is something that was once pristine, okay, that has deteriorated. Okay, and when God saw the earth, he saw something corrupt. So when I think corrupt, my mind goes to politics or something like that, you know, or big business or anything like that. I mean, that's just kind of where my mind goes. You can see the news that I watch, all right? Um, and, and, but no, this is something much different. There was something that was pristine, something that was pure, that deteriorated, that went downhill majorly. And a byproduct of that was this, violence filled the earth. It was an ugly place. It was a harmful place. It was a destructive place. It was a dangerous place. And this is what God saw when he looked. Verse 13 says, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. And then he adds this. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and it shall cover and, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. Now we're going to do a really quick lesson of a few things when it comes to Noah's ark. We actually have um, kind of one of our families, kind of the Merceberg crew. Uh, they are actually, this week, they went to um, the Ark Encounter as well as the, the, the Creation uh, Museum. Uh, and, and they might be watching right now. They said they're going. I was talking to them about this sermon that we were going to look at this week. And uh, so, hey, Merceberg, if you're there, anyway. Uh, so, let me tell you a little bit something about Noah's Ark because this is something, this is one of those stories we call accounts from scripture that will be attacked. You go, you go, to, you go to the campus of, of the college or the university out there and say that, yeah, yeah, the, I believe in Noah's Ark. I believe it really happened and see what kind of reaction you get from the majority of the people in those classes. So here's a few things we need to get straight. Here we go. Yes, the technology was available to build the ark. The technology was available to build the ark. We are in Genesis 6 here. Why don't you just turn a few pages before that to Genesis 4. It's only one page for me. Genesis 4, verse 22. Now this is in the middle of one of the genealogies, um, the records of the people, and you see this. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. So what we see right there, and this happens quite a while before the ark, okay? And what you have is they have the ability to make tools of iron and of bronze, to make nails, to make all of these different sorts of things. And stuff a lot more technical than just what I'm speaking of the basics right here and now. The technology was available. Now on top of that, you have people who have at that time their lifespan was centuries, as I've already told you. How if you have an ingenuitive people, engineering mind people who live centuries, what kind of things are they going to come up with? Just merely living that long. Noah also likely hired help to get this ark 
accomplish to get it built. And he did, oh my goodness, Hollywood, you got to be kidding me. It wasn't rocket giants, okay? I don't know if you've ever watched Noah. If you haven't, don't watch it. I mean, I really like, what's his face? What's his face who was in Gladiator? I really like Russell Crowe, but oh my goodness. It was ridiculous. And they wondered why people from churches didn't go watch it. It's like, anyway. All right, so he he probably hired people, didn't hire rock giants, okay? Um, Now we know that the building of the ark took them around, or at least a maximum of 100 years. When, when about the time when Noah's sons were born, he's about 500 years old. I know, that's crazy. I told you, they lived a long time back then, all right? And then the ark was completed and they boarded the ark At the time around, Noah was 600 years old. So we're talking about a significant period of time that this took. So yes, the technology was available to build the ark. And yes, the animals could fit on the ark. Right? Because that's another thing that's wrong. How in the world can you take all those animals and put them on this boat? There's just no way that that can take place. We get some hints in scripture of how this happened. Look at chapter 7. We're going to read verses 13 and 14. Jumping ahead just a little bit is what it says. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. Catch this. They and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, the birds after their kind. Why do we see that again? After their kind, after their kind, after their kind. This is why. Guys, Noah didn't have 1,500 different types of dogs on the ark, okay? He didn't even have wolves and coyotes on the ark. He had one member of the canine family on there, actually two of them, a male and a female, okay? And from them, all of what we see now exists, wild and domesticated. And you're like, how could that be? Are you talking about evolution? No, it's not evolution, it's called adaptation. There is no species change here. It's all within the family or the kind of canines. Do you understand what we're getting at here? What you're dealing with at that point in time, the genes, the DNA of animals was not nearly as corrupt as it today. They did not have labradoodles back then, okay? We're raising labradoodles and I don't even know what they are. They don't even register those things, all right? But people pay a lot of money for them. So anyway, so, but they didn't need all of that, all right? Now here's another thing. So you got these animals after their kind. Now on top of it, guys, I know our mind, we think big, Okay, and when we think animals, we think of rhinoceroses, okay? We think of elephants. That's where our mind goes, the big ones. The vast majority of the animal kingdom is like this size and smaller. We know that, right? The vast majority are small. So, but there are elephants out there. Guys, they didn't take Jumbo and his bride on the ark, okay? They took their kiddos. They took small of the big, when they're smaller, they're younger. Upon the earth, they were only there for about a year, Okay, yes, yes, the animals could fit upon the ark. Don't let anybody tell you different. Yes, another one, the animals could be fed, watered, and cleaned up after. You know what I'm saying, all right? Um, I have not been there yet. Some of you have, you know, have experienced what, what the, the Merceburg crew is getting to experience, uh, experience this past week, the ark encounter. Um, the Creation Museum. Do we have a few of you who probably have been there and seen that? It's something that, that 
I want to, Donna, I want to go with, with our family before our girls leave the home. We want to go there and see that. It would be an awesome trip for, for a group from church to go on to see this. Because the things that take place there, and, and, and the way Ken Ham is the one who's kind of behind that. Also the guy that I got a lot of my information from this week, Answers in Genesis. And, and what you will find there is some just really clever stuff that they do to um, feed, to water, to remove waste, all right, Um, uh, from these animals. Yes, it was possible. Yes, it did happen. And now this is the one that really catches my attention, all right? Yes, the details of the ark found in scripture stand up to modern scrutiny. Okay, so let's dig into a little bit. Go back to Genesis chapter 6. Verses 15 and 16. Genesis 6, 15 and 16. We're going to start getting a little science here, okay? This is how you shall make it. This is the Lord speaking about the ark. The length of the ark is to be 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with a lower, second, and third decks. Now I want to read something for you from that information that, that the Lord gave firsthand to Noah about the building of the ark. And believe it or not, the Lord's kind of smart, Okay. So, this is a few details. In 1993, there was a study that was done. Listen closely. I'm going to butcher your name here. I apologize. Noah's Ark was the focus of a major 1993 scientific study headed by Dr. Sion Hong at the world-class ship research center, Chriso, which is based in Daejeon, South Korea. Now listen closely. Dr. Hong's team compared 12 holes of different proportions to discover which design was most practical. No hole shape was found to significantly outperform the 4,300-year-old biblical design. In fact, the ark's careful balance is easily lost if the proportions are modified, rendering the vessel either unstable, prone to fracture, or dangerously uncomfortable. Okay, and what we mean by dangerously uncomfortable is not the sanctuary in here when the, some of you are like, it's too hot in here, preacher. And some of you are like, it's too cold in here, preacher. All right? I mean, because if I, anyway, that's a whole different story. We're talking dangerously uncomfortable of like, you hit the side of the room you're in and you break bones. Okay, so that's what we're talking about here with dangerously uncomfortable. Continue on. The research team found that the proportions of Noah's Ark carefully balanced the conflicting demands of stability, which is resistance to capsizing, comfort, which is sea keeping, and strength. In fact, the Ark has the same proportions as as a modern cargo ship. The study also confirmed that the Ark could handle waves as high as 100 feet. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, this Dr. Hong guy, he's probably a believer in the Bible and all of that, you know, so he's, he's kind of, I mean, that's what people will say. He's kind of shifting the information. No, he's not. He's an evolutionist, okay? He is, he is not a believer in God the creator, okay? What we have here is him just endorsing the seaworthiness of the ark by its dimensions found in scripture. And guess what? He came out and said, yeah, it works. 
and his credibility was not damaged in any way whatsoever. So the details in the ark and scripture, they stand up to scrutiny still today. All of this said, we have to understand that it obviously took a tremendous amount of trust in God for Noah to take on this task. I mean, that's what we're talking about here, trust. Noah has, has been made famous by his faith and his trust in God. Did you know Jesus spoke of him? The apostle Peter wrote about him. The author of Hebrews from our New Testament lists him as one of the faith heroes in Hebrews chapter 11. And Noah's trust in God, his faith in God, led him to work really, really hard, to plan, to withstand ridicule and violent threat. The world was an ugly place at that time. And I doubt people were leaving him alone as he built this monstrosity of a boat. It required faith to do all of this. But we must understand, when God closed the door of that ark and everything changed, Noah's position of faith was far from finished. Something else we need to understand. Now, this is a little bit of speculation, but I happen to agree with some of the speculators of this. If, if you look at the dimensions of the ark, if you tie in the information that backs it up, that there was plenty of room for all of the animals to fit on that ark, you find out when you begin listing and numbering those animals that the ark was actually bigger than it needed to be. It was. And I agree with others that Noah the ark builder was probably Noah the preacher as well, saying, there's a day coming when God is going to wipe it all away. Repent. There's room on this boat for you. Like I said, that might be speculation, but I don't doubt the speculation. When you really dig into this account, though, the most jaw-dropping element of this isn't the ark. It's what comes next. And let me tell you something, guys. You talk about a need for faith, and now we're going to get scientific here for a little while, okay? A need for faith. I told you a few weeks ago when we were out at 5-6 camp, it just kind of blew my mind, the songs that the kids were running around singing. Sweet Caroline. I mean, goodness gracious. Take me home, country roads. But two songs that I didn't hear that wouldn't have surprised me was, was you remember this one? Raindrops keep falling on my head. Remember that one? You know who sang that? Anybody? B.J. Thomas. I didn't know it. I looked it up this week. All right, what about, what about this guy, though? Old Eddie Rabbit? I love a rainy night. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Guys, let me tell you something. When the rains fell on the ark, it was not a pitter-patter that put Noah and his family to sleep. All right? So let's dig into it for just a moment. Turn to Genesis chapter 7. Like I said, I'm not sending you a long way. It's just Genesis chapter 7. And look at verse 11, because there's something in this that puzzles me just a little bit until we dive into it deeper. This is what it says. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, 
all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. So Noah goes on the ark. The door is shut by God, Noah and his family. Here's my question. When we think of floods, I mean, we've had a few around here. Yeah, yeah. When we think of floods, where does our mind go? Our mind goes to rain. I mean, already this year, flash floods, you know, aerial flood warning. Have that come across your phone a few times? All right, our minds go to rain. That's where they go. That's, that's where we think. That's where the water comes from. Why in the world there then do we find in Genesis 7, 11, this? Before the rains ever start, we see that the fountains of the great deep opened. And what does that mean? As I told you, it's time to get scientific. All right, the year was 1859, and there was a scientist that was way, by 100 years or more, way before his time, and he came up with a theory. This guy's name was Antonio Sinclair. He was a geographer. He was also a creationist, okay? And he began looking at the the models of the globe and he began noticing something. It seems like when you took these continents and you began to put them together, guess what happened? They kind of fit together. You've heard about this before. It wasn't until 1962 that this was widely accepted. This guy was 100 years before his time. And in around 1962, it came to be called Pangaea. Pangaea, the supercontinent. Okay? So think about that. Now, we don't know for sure that this is what took place, but the biblical record does seem, well, I'll just say this, it doesn't put the nicks on it. You understand what I'm saying? So for a moment, let's just go there. And you've got this super continent. Now, just use your mind's eye for a moment and just imagine this. Adjacent to this super continent, around the world, you have the ocean floor open up. Now this is something on a level that we could not even really understand. And it would have to be done by some sort of trigger. Just imagine that. Something powerful enough or someone powerful enough to cause this to happen. So you have an ocean floor crack that runs adjacent to the supercontinent. And when this crack takes place, because this is, this is what you have with that whole Pangea thing. You have something called, maybe you remember this from school, it's called plate tectonics. Is that, that name, that, that ring a bell with you, this process. And what that amounts to is, is underneath the earth's crust, you have what is called magma. And it makes up a pretty decent portion of the core of our, of our world underneath the surface. So what you have is, is this crust over the top. And you have making up this crust different plates. They rub against each other. They kind of move apart. Now, this is what science will tell you, that over millions and millions and millions and bazillions of years, because they just move just so minutely every year. So it takes a long time for big shifts to take place. Think of how long for for the supercontinent to become separate continents, how long that would take, millions of years. Here's the thing. Geography and the fossil record doesn't really back that up. It seems to point towards something much more cataclysmic than that. So what you have is these plates being ripped apart on the outside of this great supercontinent. It starts this massive chain reaction and the ocean floor begins to slide into the magma that is underneath it 
like a giant conveyor belt, all right? Now, this triggers something. Um, have you guys, have you guys um, ever watched those, those videos, I know you have, on YouTube, where you got those crazy people who live in places where it's like 50 below? You know, that's nuts, all right? That's like crazy. I mean, I can handle, I could even handle this year. Will we get to almost like 20 below or something? Like, like 45, 50 below, that's nuts, all right? And you have somebody go out there who's living in that environment and they take a, they take a, a cup of boiling water and they throw it in the air. What's, what's water boil at? You know? 212, very, very good. It's got some scientists here. 212. So 212 degrees, and you've seen the video, throws it up in the air. What happens? Poof. It just turns into a cloud and just kind of floats up and disappears. There's a whole lot about that, about the denseness of the air, about the water, about all these things taking place. Now imagine this on a much more gigantic level. Okay? What you have taking place here with this 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 giant conveyor belt is you have the ocean floor going down into the magma because the ocean floor is cold and it's heavy and it's dense. And as it goes down into the magma, you have the magma coming up into the ocean, releasing tremendous amounts of energy. Okay, what was that water boiling out? 212 degrees? 212 degrees. Minus 45, let's just go with that, what we got there. Basically about 255, 260 degree temperature difference. Think about this temperature difference. And it just boof, poofs into this cloud of whatever, cloud of cloud, all right? And goes up into the air. Uh, imagine this for a moment. Molten rock, 2200 degrees Fahrenheit. 2200 degrees Fahrenheit. Ocean water at the base of the ocean has an average temperature between 39 and 35 degrees. So you got 250 degrees, throw it in the air, and it poofs. What happens when you've got billions of gallons of water and a difference in temperature of over 2,000 degrees? What happens then? I'll tell you what happens. Molten rock meets the cold ocean water, and what you end up with is a 43,500 mile of a linear curtain of supersonic steam literally rifling into the air the fountains of the deep. Do you understand what this would look like? You seen Old Faithful before? That is a flea on the dinosaur's back of what we're talking about here. Do you, do you understand what we're talking about here? We're talking about worldwide. It's shooting into the air. Supersonic steam. That's fast. You understand here? As the steam rises into the upper reaches of the atmosphere, it's cold up there. It becomes dense. And guess what happens? It turns into a global rain event. Not a regional rain event a global rain event. Now, you got something else taking place simultaneously. We're not done yet. We got to go back to that ocean floor. What happens when that magma comes up? That magma comes up. It warms the ocean floor. Therefore, the ocean floor expands and it dramatically raises the level of the ocean because of displaced water. So what we got going on here? Water coming up and water coming down. And the result of all of this is a worldwide flood better described as a cataclysmic event that literally shook the world. Heard about Mount St. Helens? 
I mean, there was ash from that seen halfway across the globe. They're still studying the effects of, of what took place there in Washington State. Guys, Mount St. Helens compared to this is like a canoe compared to the Titanic. And that doesn't even do it justice. Can you imagine to be in the midst of all of this on this boat that all of a sudden feels a little small and seeing all of this, feeling all of this take place? Can you imagine what Noah and his family felt like as the world shook? Nothing like this has happened since, nor will it ever again. Truth is, I have to admit, when it comes to the faith of Noah, my mind has always gone to the building of the ark and how much trust in God that that took. And then my mind just kind of fast forwarded over this incredible event, and I, I'm ashamed to say it, to Noah just basically drift, months of drifting out on the water. You know, just waiting. And that's where my mind has always gone with the faith of Noah. And I forgot completely about this incredible event that took place. And how much faith it would require to say, how are we going to survive this? Truth is, all that Noah and company accomplished was by faith in God. He is rightly listed among the heroes of faith. And this is the way Noah showed his faith. He had the faith to live differently. You understand that? That's what got this whole thing started. God looked upon the earth and he saw wickedness. He saw corruption. He saw violence. A violence that would make, uh, I mean, guys, people burning their children in sacrifice to demons. We're talking about horrible, horrible, evil. But there was one man and his family who were different. Noah had the faith to live differently. He had faith in something that he could not see. And I'm not just talking about God, I'm talking about what was coming. He hadn't seen the flood yet, those hundred years of building the ark. He had a faith to accomplish the mundane, all right? And there was a lot of mundane in this story, whether it be, you imagine how many years of painting boards with pitch, all right? How many years this would take, day after day after day. He had the faith to accomplish the mundane. Think about shoveling the animal poop. I mean, seriously. Come on now. That's mundane, I think. It's also kind of gross, all right? But he had the faith to do these things. He had the faith to stand firm in the midst of ridicule. You don't think he had, and his family had ridicule? What are you doing? This is ridiculous, Noah. He had faith to trust God when the unthinkable and the unimaginable happened and the fountains of the deep ripped open. And the world shook. He had faith. And he had faith to lead his family to something brand new. Yes. Noah was a hero, is a hero of faith. Why don't you leave Genesis? We're done with it. Turn to, from the first book of the Old Testament to the first book of the New Testament. Matthew. 
Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, we're going to look at the latter part of it. This is Jesus speaking. This is, this is the week of, I guess you would say, the, the days before his death on a cross. And Jesus was, was preaching to the people in Jerusalem. And he was talking about the future. And part of what he's saying was having to do what was coming not too, not too far in the distant future. The fall of Jerusalem that would come about 40 years later. And then at one point there in the midst of this talking about the future, he shifted gears to something else that was coming one day. To his return. And he told story after story after story to help people understand, yes, the Son of Man is coming again. And if you look to Matthew chapter 24 and just turn to verse 37. And what do you know? Look who he's talking about. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be Jesus isn't saying that back in the days of Noah all people were doing was eating and drinking and marrying okay he's not just saying they weren't that's not all they were doing no they were just living they were oblivious they were just living life and life went on year after year therefore people continued to get married people continued to eat people continued to drink Children continued to be born. Life just continued until the end for them came. And he says, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Life will just be going. You read before this, and this is fascinating to me. We're talking about Jesus who is God, who is God's son. He is God. Understand this. And he says, not even the son knows when, because they're like, well, when's that day going to come? You know, I mean, give me a little privy information right here. That'd be good to know. He says, the father alone knows the day and the hour. He doesn't give him a day. Doesn't give him a time. He gives them this piece of advice. Be ready. Be ready for that day. You know, it was a, a few weeks ago, we, we were talking about the incredible leadership of Jesus. We were talking about him that particular Sunday of him being a shepherd, the good shepherd. And in the midst of that discussion, in, in John chapter 10, you see Jesus label himself something else as well in his discussion of being the shepherd as well as the sheep. that It's the shepherd that lays down his life. I mean, it's just an incredible, incredible allegory here because he is, he is the shepherd who cares for the sheep, yet he's also the sacrifice, and the sacrifice is the sheep. I mean, it's just like this, this powerful message. But he says something else in there. He says this. He says, I am the door. 
And it's a preview of something Jesus would later say. He'd say this to Thomas. I'm so glad Thomas asked that question. You can read it in John 14. When Thomas asked Jesus, how, how do we know where you're going? Because Jesus says, if I, go, so if I go there to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and take you. So you, where I am there, you may be also. And, and Thomas like, where are you going? And Jesus says to Thomas, because he says, he says, where are you going? How do we get there? Two good questions. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, back in Noah's day, they worked hard to build that ark. They still have a problem. The world is shaking and the door is open. It's God who did the heavy lifting and shut the door of that ark. And when it comes to us and our doorway to glory, it is God once again who does the heavy lifting. It is Jesus who sacrificed. It is Jesus who opened the way, the only way. When we come to our time of communion, brothers and sisters, it is a reminder to us that he is the only way. Don't let anyone tell you differently. No one's getting to heaven because they're good. No one. We're getting to heaven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. When we come to communion, we thank him for that blood that was shed. And we honestly review our lives and inspect our lives with a level that should probably be raised in the way we inspect our actions. Because according to the same words of the same man, Jesus Christ, it's this, it's by our actions that the light of God comes into this world. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We thank him, we reflect upon our lives and we ask ourselves an honest question. What am I doing about the people who are still outside the boat? Because he's coming back one day and Jesus said, be ready.